the way that most companies have monetized their Web2 presence is by analyzing and repackaging and sometimes even selling the data that they have collected. We become the product. The difference between a blockchain and a database is that the blockchain doesn't have an owner and it doesn't have a super user going to do what they want to it. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landi Tortoli, and my mission is to bring you the top entrepreneurs and builders across Web 2 and Web 3 to help you be successful at building and growing your company. Join us on this mission to build a better internet. In this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with Kier Filmobates, a blockchain researcher, software developer, and prolific inventor, and the author of two books, Move over brokers, here comes the blockchain and evil tokenomics. Here explores how web free and blockchain technology work in a simple and easy to understand way. And we talk about the potential implication for the economy, the society and the individuals. Please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Kira Finlow-Bates. Kira, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, really a pleasure having you here. I strongly wanted you as a guest of this podcast because uh, it's very rare to find someone with the kind of knowledge that you have, but also with the clarity in uh, explaining a very complex concept and really simplify them for everyone to understand. So... Uh, thank you really for accepting uh, my my invitation. No, you're more than welcome. And I'm sure I'm going to be way out of my depth in this interview, but I'm going to do my best to follow, follow you along and uh, ask as many questions uh, as I can along the way. So we can start maybe uh, with uh, your background because you have a PhD in mathematics and you spent most of your career as a software test engineer and quality assurance manager. And I wanted to know when and why did you decide to transition to blockchain and make it your full area of focus? Well, I really only went full-time blockchain in late 2016, or late 2015 rather. Before that, I had looked at blockchain just as a hobby starting in 2010 when somebody at the place I worked gave me a copy of Satoshi Nakamoto's paper coin, a peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And so that interested me because I'd had a previous hobby of looking at uh, cryptography, which actually came out of one of my earliest jobs in the late 90s. Uh, when I was a security tester for Citrix. So uh, it, in a sense, it's been quite a long journey to get here to the point where I'm looking at blockchain and Web3 and all these associated things every day. But as is often the case with career paths or even life choices, you kind of get to a certain point when you suddenly realize that the journey that you've been on, which seemed totally random, actually seems now to have some kind of underlying direction and purpose. And what do you think was the purpose? I mean, uh, among the many, many things, the many technological innovations, right, that are going on right now, we're seeing uh, uh, AI with chat, 
GPT. Why blockchain? Well, I have to admit, there was a while back where I thought AI would be an interesting thing to specialize in. It does have so many immediate practical applications, especially the things that we see in the media, because they go for all the stuff that captures headlines. And in that sense, I'm kind of jealous of AI compared to well, blockchain, because AI, they get occasional scare stories about robots taking over the world, but most of the time it's, hey, cool, cars driving themselves. Hey, cool, computers having conversations with you about philosophy. And blockchain gets headlines along the lines of another $100 million stolen from this protocol and another Ponzi scheme collapses. So that's something I'm jealous of AI. But then when I think deeper about what blockchain offers, it's a it has as its base a technology and a rather complicated technology in terms of the, uh, the mathematical knowledge that you need to have to fully grasp it. So you're looking at cryptography, which is the tough end of computer science. You're looking at other computer science concepts like peer-to-peer networks, consensus systems, databases. But the thing is that on top of all that, you have the problem that it's actually solving which is a social problem, the problem of trust between different people. And it's an economic problem because it's about transactions. How do people engage in transactions in a trustworthy manner? And so it actually ties into a whole bunch of other concepts around technology that are very deeply connected with how we function as human beings. So it poses uh, sociological, psychological, and even philosophical questions. And uh, that's something that AI, I don't think, gets close to. It kind of has that one core thing on what happens if we invent an AI that uh, tries to take over the world, which I personally have to believe is not going to happen soon. I think the AIs look like they're a lot more advanced than they actually are. However, we do have immediate problems in society when it comes to economics. You know, we, we see repeated cycles of financial collapses. We see large-scale frauds happening on a yearly basis. Uh, we see disparities between uh, the wealth of the rich and the poor getting ever and ever bigger. And the conventional systems that we have in place in terms of financial regulation, uh, in terms of uh, the banking systems and in particular the central banks that we use, and uh, the steps taken by governments don't seem to be doing anything about this. If anything, they seem to be exacerbating the problem. So. That, to me, is why blockchain is important. It's not just technology. It is politics. It is philosophy. It is sociology. So maybe we can deep dive uh, into this together. Because yeah. why is blockchain technology really so significant? You mentioned already something that I think is quite important, which is uh, uh, the element of uh, trust. So maybe we, we can follow up in this direction uh, and go over why, what, what impact do you think the blockchain technology is going to have? Right. So trust is a funny word because there are actually at least two kinds of trust. And when somebody says, I trust you, we're using one sense of the word trust, which is I, I know you, I know how I expect you to behave. I have got a measure of your character. That's probably either through your reputation or because we have a long-standing relationship of some kind. 
And as a result, I will give you the opportunity to look after my stuff, to transact with me, whatever, because I trust you in a way that I wouldn't trust a stranger. So that's one kind of trust. The other kind of trust you have is not based on reputation or a, a sort of social setting. Uh, it's based on determinism. You know, I, I trust that the sun will rise tomorrow. And I don't trust the sun to rise tomorrow because I have a, a close personal relationship with it, or because I have transacted with it many times. It's because the sun's part of our solar system. It's a deterministic system. It's risen empirically, proven that it's risen every day. And so that's a different kind of trust. And at the moment for transactions, we tend to rely on the reputation kind of trust. I, I'm going to buy a pair of trainers from a big brand sneaker manufacturer because they have a brand, they have a reputation, and I trust them rather than buying some cheap knockoff. I'm, you see it in business all the time. You know, there's the, the old adage, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. So they, they managed to build up a brand and a trust and it kind of becomes self-perpetuating. When it comes to the world that we, we live in now, thanks to the internet and globalization, there are so many more opportunities for me to transact with people who I do not even properly know. Some random seller on Etsy. There's just a string of characters on uh, my screen. You know, those kind of things. So, and this is where blockchain comes in nicely because it takes your transactions and rather than me sending you one kind of digital thing and getting another digital thing back, uh, with blockchain and then trusting that you will send the second half back, with blockchain we can, and with smart contracts, we can set up systems whereby it's deterministically ensured that if I give you A, you, you will have to give me B. So that that's the, that's the uh, situation when it comes to trust in blockchain. It, it, and this is why you get this strange contradiction where some people describe blockchain as trust building and other people describe it as trustless, which sounds like a contradiction when you first hear it. But what it's doing is it's, it's building your psychological trust in the system because it's removing the need for any other kind of trust other than this determinism. This aspect of trust, I think it's one of the core elements, the ability to trust strangers. But what are others' implications that blockchain can have? How can it transform our society or, or the way we live? And instead, what are the potential downside? You mentioned for AI, the clear downside could be AI could take over. That was one of the most cited, I believe. <laughs> well, it's the most media-friendly. I mean, ultimately, the, the near-term problem with AI is that you're allowing a machine to make a decision that maybe in some cases a human being should be making. Now, we, we do this already all the time. If you look at aeroplanes, uh, you know, they are, there's fly-by-wire. The pilot is there to step in if something goes badly wrong. But uh, and I'm not saying that piloting an aeroplane is not a skillful job. But a lot of it has been automated to an extent that I imagine World War II fighter pilots would find frightening. And so there's the risk with AI is that we, we start allowing them to make more and more decisions. And the big problem is we don't know how they reach those conclusions. That they, they are a bit of a, 
we know how they function, but we don't know how they end up configuring themselves to make these decisions, to be able to spot the difference between a cat and a dog. And now, spotting the difference between a cat and a dog is not a life or death situation, but uh, spotting the difference between a pedestrian and a clear road uh, well be. And you just don't want to be in that situation where it's that one in a million case where the AI says, in this particular case, there is no one there. But anyway, I've got sidetracked into AI. It's your original question was, um, how, was a very broad one, which was, how uh, is blockchain going to change our society? And I, I've just started to touch on it by describing this idea of enabling transactions between strangers in a trustless manner so that therefore the two parties involved trust the system will work. And, and that's kind of where we are at the moment. And then the other area that uh, where we've expanded out into from that, because um, that was kind of the original solution of blockchain as put forward by Nakamoto, is that the replacement of money with something else. And this is very contentious because money is something that gives you a lot of power in society. And there are a lot of uh, incumbents. So there are a lot of institutions that have done very well out of being close to the, the, the money spring, as it were, the money found. Something I've mentioned occasionally is that uh, it's not surprising that bankers get paid more than lawyers, who get paid more than doctors, who get paid more than school teachers, even though most of us would say that a good teacher makes a much bigger contribution to society than a good banker does. And when you look at it, the reason is that uh, their pay is proportional to how close they are to where the money comes from. And in a sense, that makes sense. If you happen to be, if you happen to control the mine that produces the oil, you happen to control the bridge that goes over the river, well, then you get to charge what you like uh, to other people who have to use it. And everybody has to use money in modern society. We don't. We don't trade eggs for cheese anymore. Not in a bartering society. So, so it's not surprising there's a lot of resistance to it. And in fact, it's been interesting as somebody who's been following blockchain and in particular Bitcoin for the last 12 years to see how the narrative from these various venerable institutions have changed. In the early days, they completely ignored the currencies of Bitcoin, and then they uh, ridiculed it. it. It's a joke. You know, they're just funny money. They're just, guys are just playing in a sandbox. And then they moved on to outright attacking it, and we're still seeing the attacks. They used the same tired old arguments over and over again because on the surface, some of them sound convincing. That's at least the reason I think they used them. I think another part of it is that they're all signaling to each other that they're in the same gang. These people, these blockchain people are not. But the final thing, of course, is adoption. They're, uh, they basically give in and say, okay, it's, it's here. We can't do anything about it. We're going to join in. And maybe once we're inside, we can start directing it in that direction that we're happy with. And that is something we're seeing now as well, because lots of different financial institutions are actually seriously starting to look at the uh, topic of blockchain and uh, putting jobs out there to try and get people to actually come on board and help them with their blockchain strategies and their blockchain research. We saw recently that the United Kingdom is talking about a central bank digital currency and 
they, uh, the Bank of England actually had an advert for a, uh, a blockchain expert to be able to offer suggestions on an, a possible smart contract architecture, things like that. So uh, but things change. Whether they're actually going in the right direction, ultimately, I guess only time will tell. Yeah, and a lot of people are actually very, wouldn't say scared, but like mindful, you know, of what it will mean to have a CBDC, a central bank digital currency. And the UK is not the only one who's uh, looking to roll it out. The EU is doing it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I believe in the US also, they are studying how to do that. Um, Yeah, China has actually got a prototype running. I mean, they've, yeah. they've been building it up for a while and they're giving us a few yeah. pointers as to how it's going to go. What do you think is the future going to look like uh, with a central bank uh, digital currency rolled out uh, on a large scale, like regionally, but then ultimately like worldwide? Uh, so what, what could governments do with that? And what would be the role of banks? Because if you think about it, like, Central banks uh, use banks to bank. implement, uh, no. yeah, to implement their fiscal policy, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and to regulate interest rate, you know, and their monetary policy. Okay, mm -hmm. but if they can do it directly in the wallets of their citizens, uh, why do you even need banks at that point? You know, so I don't know. Yeah, it's so. You're right. And in fact, I would expect uh, retail banks to be one of the strongest institutions to push again, uh, back against this. You know, you have, you have central banks, you have retail banks who act as the bridge between the uh, currency creators and the currency users, us, the uh, citizens. And then you have investment banks as well. Let's fill another one then. And retail banks would see their opportunities dwindled. Some of their functions and responsibilities would disappear with the arrival of CBDCs. So, and I can't see them being very happy about this. Plus, they're quite wealthy. They haven't gone bankrupt. So that could be one of the areas where we possibly get saved. And on the other hand, if governments are very keen on it, then ultimately there's not really much a, an ordinary bank can do to stop it. So, uh, other than lobby. And the thing is, a, a central bank digital currency is very seductive to an authoritarian government. And most governments are authoritarian, which is, it's kind of, it's almost unavoidable, right? Part of governing is to be a, the authority in a nation. And if you look at uh, the United Kingdom, for example, it's, a, it's effectively a two party system. You have the Conservatives and the Labour Party. And Although they support different elements of society, they're both authoritarian parties. They, they both want to have control. They're not liberal in any meaningful sense. So there you have a country that's a democracy, but it is likely to bring in a CDBC at some point because it's an, it, it has always had authoritarian governments. So and we as citizens should be scared of that. We've already moved down this route through the changes in payment technologies. So there are restrictions on purchases greater than 10,000 euros, for example. They need to be registered. 
Um, in Finland, there where I live, there's been a uh, very strong move towards uh, chip and pin payment. So cash is becoming rarer and rarer. Even small payments are now made using contactless payment and chip and pin. So that means that the banks have a complete record of the transactions that you've undertaken. And in Finland, the tax office can request information about your bank account. So they can actually see uh, how much money you received and how much you've spent, uh, which they, of course, want to be able to in order to check whether you're avoiding paying income tax. But it does mean that the whole financial and government systems are tied together and they have a high level of surveillance. It seems to work out reasonably okay in Finland because it's a, it's a funny country in that the, uh, the society as a whole is very socialist, but the individual Finns are very independent um, and individualistic. And I don't really know how they've managed that, but they have. And they also have a, a very strong sense of fair play and honesty compared to some other countries that I've lived in, and I'm not going to name them to shame them. But for a lot of other countries out there, I think this is going to be an absolute disaster. In particular, the one that bothers me is the means it gives the central bank to do things like uh, make it harder for you or to prevent you from buying certain things. So they could, for example, say that uh, we want to reduce spending on fuel, so we're going to cap the amount of petrol you can buy in a month, or we're going to make it twice as good, as expensive just for you, not for people in some other city, things like that. Or they can put a time limit on your money. So they say, oh, we need to increase the uh, velocity of the money uh, supply. We need people to be spending more and saving less. And the way they used to do that was with interest rates. Now they can just do that directly. They can reach in and go, okay, here's your money. It's going to evaporate if you don't spend it in two weeks. So don't even think about saving it because in two weeks it'll be gone. Go out and buy. So these kind of things, I think, exert far too intrusive a control over the lives of everyday citizens. And ultimately that can lead you down the path to the government making lists of desirables and undesirables and excluding the undesirables from the financial system. And we've seen where that ended up in the Second World War. And I don't really usually like to draw parallels with that particular era in history because I think they're overused. But in this case, we're looking at a, a financial equivalent that they can just say, we do not like this particular sector of society. We're going to make their lives impossible. Yeah, and if you couple that with the rollout of digital identities, that uh, will go hand in hand with that. Uh, I mean, they are probably, I think probably they might roll out digital identity and then CBDC, but not not, not quite sure. Or we'll couple them together, that, that right? Works. I mean, uh, yeah. it's sort of, they do tie in neatly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, some experiments are being conducted uh, right now in, in China, as we speak. I believe that these of time limit your money as opposed yeah. to raising interest rate, forcing you to spend money is really something uh, yeah. where They have social China, credit as well, where they rank you. Yeah, yeah. Let's move on uh, from the topic of uh, the general blockchain. And then we got sidetracked talking about uh, dystopian yeah. futures and CBDCs. I wanted to get back to your LinkedIn post because you posted another thing on LinkedIn that uh, caught my attention. You publish a PDF uh, that explained very simply 
in a very elegant manner, what is Web3? And I got this question mm-hmm. from a lot of people that also work in big tech companies. What is this uh, Web3 all about? Uh, what's behind the buzzword? Uh, how does it work? Maybe we can uh, start addressing this. Sure. So I'd probably best start off with the confusion surrounding the term Web3, which is that there are several groups of people who have tried to take the name to mean something. And uh, of course, I fall in the camp of people who use it to describe the future of the web, particularly involving blockchain. And why I think that's important will become clear shortly. But you have other people who talk about Web3 as meaning the semantic web. And so Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the World Wide Web, would like that to be the use of the term. So you've already got a confusion when you've got one word for two. However, given that we're talking about blockchain and decentralization, I think we'll stick with the Web3 from a blockchain perspective. And I, I believe it was Gavin Wood, one of the original Ethereum founders, who coined this um, idea of Web3 being an evolution of the familiar web that we have, but using blockchain and smart contracts. And if we have a little bit of history, we have, we have Web1, which is kind of 1989 till about 2000. That is a very static form of the web. You publish something and then other people go and look at it. And there was a bit of to and fro because there was something called the Common Gateway Interface, CGI, not to be confused with uh, computer graphics term CGI, and that uh, did allow people with their web browser to send some information back to the web server, but it was very compartmentalized. And then we saw the evolution of Web 2, which is where they stuck, effectively they stuck a database behind the web server. And so you had pages where you could type stuff in and it would be written to the database. And the advantage of this is that other people could come to the website and they could see what it was that you wrote. And hence, we have social media. And that's, that is at its core what social media is about. I write something on a web page, the web server saves it to a database. You then come in and see what it is that I wrote. And then we can have a dialogue rather than it just being me going and requesting information and getting it back. And we've been running with that idea or the the subsequent 15 years, so 2000 to 2015. And Gavin's idea was, well, what if instead of it being a database, or rather not instead, what is if as well as a database also used a blockchain? Because the problem with a database is that it's centralized. There's a company that has paid for a server. They've installed a database like Oracle, MySQL, something on that server. They have an admin username and password, and that allows them to go into the database and do what they like with the data. And this has resulted in a lot of problems for us as individuals, because the way that most companies have monetized their Web2 presence is by analyzing and repackaging and sometimes even selling the data that they have collected. So we've become their commodity. We've we've become the product. And what we are doing is we are giving vast amounts of information about ourselves and vast amounts of opinions that we have and things like that to the people who run these databases. They are then selling it on to advertisers. And the difference between a blockchain and a database is that the blockchain doesn't have a an owner 
and it doesn't have an admin username and password, and it doesn't have a super user going and do what they want to it. So on the blockchain, you have data that is specifically under the control of an individual owner, and that individual owner can be you, me, anybody. And that data is stored in such a way that only the owner of the data can make changes to it. Now, at the moment, those changes are very specific, and they tend to focus on the idea of ownership of tokens or ownership of cryptocurrency. But a lot of people are hoping that this can extend outwards into all kinds of data. So the big one, and we touched on it earlier, was identity. The idea that at the moment you have to go to an authority to get your identity credentials. You are who you are, but you have to prove it to a government. They then give you a, a document like a passport or a driving license. And then you use that to prove to other people that you are who you say you are. And that gives those authorities a lot of control. It's the centralized database problem again. And so a lot of people out there have some hope that with Web3 websites using blockchains rather than databases as kind of a data store and kind of a database, but a very special one, we're all going to have much more individual control over our participation in the World Wide Web in a way that we don't have at the moment with Web2 because it's all in the hands of the Facebooks, and Googles, and Twitters, and Microsofts, and Apples of the world. The big tech companies rule it. And if they decide that they don't want us to play in it anymore, then they ban us. You, know, you, you, you say something that tw Twitter doesn't like, you lose your Twitter account. If you try to add some software to your Apple phone that Apple doesn't approve of, they prevent it. And if you jailbreak your phone, maybe they can remotely disable it. You tell Facebook your name and address and email address and give them a list of all your friends. And they package it all up and sell it to advertisers, some of whom use it to target you with political information to entrench beliefs that you have or to make you shift beliefs that you have to become more radicalized. This is what we saw at the end of the last decade. So these are all big problems. And the optimistic hope with Web3 and the idea of it not being a centralized database, but rather it being this decentralized data store is that we can overcome some of those problems and hand the, the power back to the people, as it were. Now, we're only a short journey down that at the moment, and I've now described a kind of hope for the future version of Web3. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment is there are conventional Web2 websites, which they will continue to be using web frameworks such as React, Angular, create them, but they'll have this, they have this extra component in them, which is that there's some code in the web page that talks to a blockchain wallet in your browser. And in the Ethereum ecosystem, the most popular blockchain wallet is MetaMask, but there are plenty of other ones out there too. And the, the browser can talk to the wallet and the wallet can sign things with a cryptographic key. And then now I'm starting to go into it a bit too technically. But basically that wallet becomes a way of you having an identity and a way of you asserting your ownership of certain areas of the blockchain. And the web pages act as an interface that is a little bit more convenient than having to use a terminal or write code 
in order to execute your blockchain transactions. The website packages them neatly in a graphical format that you're used to with buttons and text fields and drop down lists and stuff and gives you information. And then you use those and your blockchain wallet to interact with this database version of a blockchain. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I think it's very exciting because it's, it's actually once you get involved in the programming, surprisingly simple to get it working. So, I mean, I, I can give you an example of an identity system that I coded up in the space of an afternoon about a week ago, if you like. Yes, please. Okay. So, so if you look at Web2 authentication, it is a mess, right? <clears throat> we started off with, uh, well, you're going to need a username and you're going to need a password in order to be able to log in. And can we have your email address too? So we can contact you in some other way if something goes wrong with your account or you get locked out. Oh, and these databases where we store this data get hacked. So we're going to hash your password and we're going to bring in two-factor authentication. So we'll send you texts. Oh, no, that doesn't work because people can clone SIMs. And you can have an authenticator app and it creates a number and then you have to dig out your phone and fish out the authenticator. And in my case, I have somewhere in the region of 50 authenticator apps running in my authenticator for different websites because I sign up to a lot of things part of my work. And then they don't look after the database, so it gets breached. There's a website called Have I Been Owned, with a P, not with an O in Owned, where you can go and check how many data breaches your data has been released in. Um, so it, it's a mess, and they're trying to fix it by bolting more and more stuff onto it. And by the time you had to enter your username, your password, your two-factor authentication, solve the capture, and then type in a code that got emailed to you in order to log on, and it takes five minutes. I would think that people should have become fed up by now, but perhaps it's a bit like the frog in the pan of water, where if it's only boiled slowly, it doesn't notice until it's you know, it's died. So maybe we've become inured to all of this because it's gradually been added to the systems over time, and we don't think it's odd anymore that it takes five minutes to log in all different processes. Yeah, now, or maybe maybe because we don't have alternatives. Uh. Right. So <laughs> yes, but that's this the other is, one, I think it? where it's going to right now. <laughs> yeah. And I haven't even touched on what if you then try to buy something from the website that you've logged on to, right? Because now we're getting oh. into banking authentication. And um, oh, yeah. I mean, the number of times I've looked at a verified by Visa pane, which has a kind of gray, sad looking face because it's failed to load properly. And then I'm stuck with did I buy it? Did I not? Do I buy it again? If I get two of them, then I have to go through the returns process. Anyway, that's that's Web 2. And it, it's, no matter how hard we've tried, it's not secure, it's not convenient, and it reveals an awful lot of information about yourself. So why should I have to give all that data to a, a website that allows me to draw doodles? It's, it's one thing if it's banking and they have all these regulations, but why are some of these sites asking for so much information about you? Oh, because as product manager, we want to know all your data so yeah, that we can yeah. improve our products and then you can you come back. Check. Yeah, that's why we ask all this information. Then we track whatever you do inside our products. Right. Th yeah. That's what exactly. we do. Yeah. But but, but we uh, justify this uh, by saying that yeah. actually we want to do this to give you a better user concerns. experience. Uh, you know, that's how we justify it. And it's so a, that's it's a the answer. It's a coincidence that that data is also very valuable. Yeah, yeah. just a coincidence. Yeah. 
So with Web3, what I did the other week was I was coding up uh, an avatar generator for my pet metaverse that I've been working on the last nine months or so. And I wanted people to be able to log on with their blockchain wallet. And uh, if you are involved in blockchain and you have one of these wallets installed as a browser extension on your browser or as an app on your mobile phone, it's sort of sitting there in the top right-hand corner of your browser. And you can go to these Web3 websites where there's a button saying connect wallet and you click on it and your blockchain wallet opens up and it says, do you want to connect to this site? Now, the thing here is that you're not actually authenticating yourself at that point. All you're doing is you're giving the website permission to ask your wallet for some data and the data is your address or your addresses that wallet. And you're giving the web page permission to send a suggested transaction to your blockchain wallet, which, I mean, it's going to be very useful if the site is for minting an NFT or it's for swapping one blockchain token for another, then the site is kind of putting together the bits and bytes required for the transaction that will actually cause the smart contract on the blockchain to mint the NFT or to cause the smart contract on the blockchain to swap token A for token B. But you're not authenticated at that point. And the reason for that is that you haven't actually proved that you own the address that you've shared with the website. Because you can add addresses to your blockchain wallet that are kind of for observation. So if you want to, you can go and look up what Vitalik Buterin's Ethereum address is, and you can actually add it to your wallet as a, um, I'm just going to monitor it. And the only way you can prove that you own that address is by signing something with the private key. Because it's the private key of your wallet that shows that you own the public address. And a website can do that. It can present you with a innocuous string of text. It says, please sign this message to prove that you own this address. And then you click sign. And that's where in authentication, that's called a challenge response. So I'm, I'm challenging you to prove something to me about yourself. And then you're responding by proving it. It's like the, the guard at the castle saying, who goes there? It's me. Okay, well, what's the password to come in? Here's the password. But in this case, the password is unique to you and it's not even revealed. But you're not even showing the password to the, to the guard. You're just proving that you are the person in control of the public address because you can do something that only somebody with the corresponding private key can do. And that is the, I'm afraid, the simplest explanation I have for Web3 authentication at the moment. And it's going to get better, but it's already remarkably effective. And the thing is, we've had this for three decades now, nearly. The guy called Phil Zimmerman came up with PGP, pretty good privacy, and in the 90s. And the idea was that everybody would create their own public key, private key, and they'd keep the private key secret, and they would reveal the public key, and then they could prove to other people if they're sending, if I send you an email, I can prove that it really is me because I sign the email with my private key and you have my public key and therefore you can check and know that the email really is from me and not from somebody who's pretending to me be because they desperately want to be on your podcast. But the issue that Zimmerman's invention had was that how do you get all these keys out there? How do we get all the keys to everybody? And they used to have these things called key signing parties. So geeks would have a party 
and they would all bring along their uh, public-private key pairs and they would sign each other's public keys to say, yeah, this is my friend. And you built this sort of web of trust. But clearly that's not scalable. You can't have a global identification system that requires people to gather and drink cheap beer and eat cheap pizza and sign each other's public keys. And so that's a piece that is now being solved with blockchain. Because now we have a public forum. Blockchain's public, it's open, it's permissionless. Anybody can interact with it. So we have a public forum where, where we can actually do these things. And for somebody who's been looking at cryptography on and off for years, I find that very exciting. It's, a, it's an interesting piece to be added to the technology arsenal. And it's, a, again, because it's socially significant. Because ultimately, I think... It, it doesn't necessarily have to be blockchain, but it's the best candidate we have at the moment. And I think it's going to form a significant part of us being able to build our own digital identities and be in control of them ourselves. And we see terms such as self-sovereign identity, which I'm not so fond of. I prefer more as sort of self-managed because you're still going to need to have credentials provided to you by other authorities. I can't prove I am who I am in a vacuum. It's, I, I am who I am because of the interactions I've had with other people and with other institutions. So, so I need Cambridge University to provide evidence that I got a degree from them and I need South Bank University to provide, provide evidence that I got a PhD. I can add extra evidence like um, the fact that I published my thesis and that's available online, things like that. But ultimately, you still need authorities here or there. You can't, I can't just suddenly declare that I'm, I'm French. I need the French government to say, well, yes, we agree. Are there other use cases uh, when it comes to Web3 and their, and their social significance, right? You touched upon a lot. It's not just like a user experience in the sense like, yeah, not getting asked uh, like 10 million questions when you sign on a website or when you when you have to pay when you check out to your favorite e-commerce website right so that that's one aspect for sure but also there is their aspect uh, as you mentioned of you being to have more of a control of your data instead of mm -hmm. a company having control of your data and possibly selling it to advertisers uh, or you mentioned to politicians etc right are there other use cases of web free that are significant in comparison to what we have right now with web two, let's say? Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, uh, authentication that you manage yourself is a very significant one because it kind of moves us out of a serfdom, you know, like back in the middle ages where when you were a farmer, you were basically owned by the local uh, nobleman who himself was actually under the control of the king. So we kind of, at the moment, we're living in a bit of a feudal society when it comes to the World Wide Web and the internet. So there's the fact that it's breaking that down into becoming a bit more democratic, I think, is good. And the other fact is that it ties in payments automatically, which, again, is hugely significant. You know, this, uh, payments is um, kind of one of the foundations of our society. The ability for me to pay you for something or um, for a company to pay an employee or uh, whatever, then it, it's kind of how, it's how modern society works. So 
So we've already got two huge things there. I think the third thing worth touching on is ours, decentralized autonomous organizations. And they're not as complicated as they first, or as magical as they first sound. But again, it's another example of blockchain introducing something that seems to be complicated. Then you find out that technically it's actually not that complicated. Then you find out that there are edge cases that are. And then you realize that it's because the underlying concept is very powerful, but very simple. So we, I talked about how identity can be simple. And I, when it comes to uh, decentralized autonomous organizations, you have to look at how companies work. And so we, we, we've invented the concept of the company in order to allow groups of people to act cooperatively and achieve something that they couldn't individually. Then during the Italian Renaissance, they started uh, with the idea of limited liability companies, which means that you can take more risks as an entrepreneur. If we still lived pre that era, we wouldn't have all these entrepreneurs and startups and all this innovation because nobody would take the risk. It's already a big risk to start a company and lose your life savings. Uh, Imagine if you also lost we're guaranteed to lose your house and your car and everything on top of it. So limited liability companies were a great advance in how human beings can cooperate together. And, and we have a whole load of companies' law that has been instituted to regulate them and keep them under control and make sure that people aren't conned by them. So there's a whole balance of power in a company. You have the executive led by the CEO making day-to-day decisions on what the company should do, what it should spend money on, how to get in the direction it's supposed to go. And the CEO is appointed by a board of directors headed by a chairman or chairwoman. And they kind of set the long-term global view for the company and they check up to make sure the CEO is doing a good job and isn't committing fraud, things like that. And then if it's a public company, you have the shareholders and the shareholders can kick out the board if the board turns out to be incompetent or corrupt. So it's, it's, a, it's a checks and balances system like the US government system is meant to be. Most effective governments have some kind of system to stop dictatorships that you don't end up with a dictatorship. And DAOs allow for a kind of automation of that corporate structure. When, when you think about it, a company has assets and the officers of the company decide how they're going to be spent. So the CEO may have to get permission from the board to spend a significant amount of sum, but may be able to uh, spend a smaller amount. And the middle manager can spend a very, very small amount without going and getting permission first. And a DAO is a smart contract that is holding assets, be Ether, could be uh, USDC, some kind of token that has value. And the people who are members of the DAO get to vote on how those assets are spent. And uh, so it kind of mirrors the structure of of a company. And the way you get to be a member of the DAO shareholder, as it were, is by paying for tokens of that now. That's like buying shares in a company. It's like I happen to, well, actually it's five now after this swap. 
I own one share in Tesla just because I thought it might be interesting. There might be a point in the future where it could be useful to be able to have a shareholder's vote influence, even though it's small. Plus, I like the idea of being able to tell people that I had a Tesla when I only paid 70 euros for it. But, uh, but back to the DAO anyway. So yeah, so you have this computer program. It controls assets. You and I can buy shares to have a say in how those assets are spent. And the DAO handles the voting. And that's DAOs explained very simply. And they, they mimic the corporate structure. There are heaps of problems with them that still need solving. For example, hostile takeovers. A DAO is very valuable, then somebody might be able to buy enough tokens to swing a vote, and they might vote for a proposal, which is that all the assets are given to them. So that's a weakness. The other problem you have is with participation. So some DAOs have a shockingly low vote threshold to pass a, a resolution because the people are buying the tokens and then just forgetting about it because it's like buying shares in a company. And then not actually being interested in the company. You just go and look at the share price every year and see whether you're going to sell them or not. It becomes a speculation rather than a genuine interest in the company. And coupled with that is the problematic nature of voting. Anybody who's done any studying of political science will tell you that voting is a really tricky business. And there are all sorts of complex and convoluted voting systems out there that have been proposed in order to overcome deficiencies and weaknesses in voting. I mean, I, I again, I'm from a country that has a problem in my perception that uh, we use a first-past-the-post fo- first voting system. So uh, you could end up in a... Si- the, the countries that the UK is divided into constituencies and the majority in each constituency gets the seat in Parliament, right? So technically, you can have a situation where... of the people vote for the blue party and 49% vote for the red party. And the blue party gets every single seat in parliament. So the red party has no representation. That can theoretically happen. It's a weakness in the voting system, as far as I'm concerned. The the two big parties in Britain don't think it's a weakness because it's what guarantees that one of the two of them will be in power. So they don't want to change the system because maybe the yellow party or the green party will actually get control and they don't want that. They never admit it. That's how they feel. So DAOs have these problems too, and they're not immediately obvious, especially since it's sort of early on, and a lot of this stuff is still in the experimental alpha phase. But I think they're amazingly exciting. I think that there's all sorts of opportunities to increase the efficiency and rapidity with which a company-like entity can act. Because... If you're waiting for the next board meeting to sign off on some harebrained scheme that may well net the company billions, you know, that, that's, that's a delay. But if you can have the vote now, and, and secondly, companies have an annual general meeting once a year normally, where the shareholders can vote to express their dissatisfaction with the executive. This DAOs would allow for shareholders to actually have a say on the day-to-day running of the company. That may be a mixed blessing, but I think there are some cases yeah. where, yeah, yeah, you know what people are like, but uh, there are some cases where it could be really advantageous, especially for medium-sized companies. It's, mm-hmm. you know, a s- smaller number of shareholders, maybe it's not a public company, so you haven't just got any old idiot who's walked off the street with a 
stack of cash bought into the company, but where the various shareholders in a startup can actually approve stuff without having to get into meetings and argue about it for weeks. So who knows? All sorts of possibilities there. But it's the fact that it ties into companies and the idea of the corporation is something that's carried us a long way through the Industrial Revolution, that's for sure. Yeah, and I'm also incredibly excited by DAOs and like the way they're going to develop in, in the future. I see many also of the problems that you mentioned, right, when it comes to, to DAOs. I see many cases in which, you know, there is uh, basically no participation or where there is a, a type of participation where you can see that not everyone is as informed uh, willingly or not as they should be to be able to make decisions for everyone. So it's it's a very interesting rabbit hole to yeah. Yeah. to explore and to go into. But I'm curious to know if, in your opinion, there are cases in which a Web2 structure makes more sense than a Web3 one. Like one challenge that I can think about is uh, scalability and uh, how fast it can be, right? And the other is, um, let's take, for example, I don't know, a Twitter, right? Do I really want my tweet to be forever uploaded in the blockchain and never to be forgotten? So are there cases, in your opinion, where Web2 makes more sense? Uh, yeah, so what you've touched on here is a common misconception about okay. Web3, which is that we're going to throw out the databases and we're going to replace them with blockchains. And I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, I wouldn't recommend it because there are things that a database is really good at that a blockchain isn't. And indeed, one of those speed of transactions, the fact that you can delete stuff, because there are things that you want to be able to delete. So yes, I would never recommend that you put private data on a blockchain, for example, because it's going to get cracked eventually. Someone's going to find out what it is. So you use the you use the blockchain for the cases where it's useful. So, for example, establishing an identity or showing a record of ownership of an asset. Those are good uses for it. Storing an endless stream of tweets, probably not the greatest use. And Web3 is an extension of Web2. Right? In the same way that when we went from Web 1 to Web 2, we didn't scrap static pages. Right? You still get a landing page when you go to a website. You still have documents that are presented on web pages that are static. We didn't just throw all the old stuff out. We built on top of it. So Web 3 is actually just saying we have a new component that we can use. And that component is a blockchain. And here are the features and capabilities that it offers us. And here are the social advantages that it gives us that we don't currently see with centralized databases. So indeed, you're not going to store an entire movie on a blockchain in encrypted form and then somehow release the key to customers who then want to watch it. It wouldn't work anyway because they could then go and give that key to other people. You know, once, once you've, the genie's out the bottle once you've de uh, given people the ability to decrypt it. But what you can use it for is, for example, generating session keys to being able to access a traditional streaming service. And another possibility is that rather than opening a subscription and then cancelling it, maybe you have the possibility to sell on a subscription. So secondary markets is something that we haven't talked about, which is that in the Web2 world, you as the user 
and very little recourse if you change your mind or if you're not interested anymore, you, you kind of, you lose what you had. And games are a classic example of this. You, know, you, you spend, you could be a teenager spending hundreds and thousands of hours playing a game, having, leveling up a character, amassing a large number of magical swords and bags of gold. And then you get a bit older and you're no longer interested in the game. There's nothing you can do to get back the time, but you wouldn't want to. It was enjoyable. But also those assets are now not worth anything because you can't transfer them. So if you had a game where the assets were represented as NFTs or as tokens on the blockchain, then you have the opportunity to actually maybe get back some of the money that you spent on the game by trading them onwards. Now, incumbent game companies don't like this because they see it as a lost revenue opportunity, right? They would much rather sell, be the only one selling the V-Bucks or the goals to the new players rather than older players being able to pass on their assets to the new players. But I think they're being very short-sighted in this. They're, they're thinking short-term. And I think the long-term attractiveness of knowing that the, the achievements and the gains that you've made in the game um, are not lost the minute you decide you no longer want to play it, I think the game companies are missing a trick. It's And it goes beyond the idea of sort of collectibles. This isn't just some glorified digital version of baseball cards. I mean, it actually can take a game and allow it to establish its own independent economy. And we're seeing more and more that people are attracted to games where they have more input and more creativity. And And that doesn't just mean placing diorite blocks on top of granite blocks in some kind of voxel game. It's not just about literal digital building. It's also about things such as the the society and the culture and the economics that grow around these kinds of games. And at the moment, a lot of that seems to just happen by accident. We have, there's a number of games, although Minecraft would be the best one to point out, where there's, there's a huge culture behind it and all sorts of weird and wonderful servers and all sorts of programming projects and sites, services, various people offer. You know, so it, it's, it's really kind of grown beyond its original scope. And that's because it's involved its community in a cultural way. But the sad thing is that uh, Mojang through Microsoft has turned around and said that absolutely no blockchain and NFTs. Right. But, uh, I, I think they. I think one day they'll revisit that. It's just a knee-jerk reaction to some of the problems that have been shown, and the argument they give in their reasoning for it that uh, NFTs are they exclude people rather than include them. Well, I know where they're coming from with that. If you needed a board ape to play Minecraft, then there wouldn't be many players. Um, but to be honest, uh, you have to buy a copy of Minecraft to play it. And if you create skins or textures and sell them on the Minecraft marketplace, Microsoft takes 30% of the money that you make. I mean, that doesn't strike me as very inclusive. It seems decidedly predatory to me. But they're a business, right? And they think in the way that businesses do. And businesses haven't quite yet evolved past the paradigm we've had for corporations for the last 50, 100 years. That's interesting. What do you think will, is or will be the reaction of uh, 
those big tech companies to Web3. You mentioned right now the Microsoft stance is, uh, no, we are not going to do blockchain or NFT. So what do you think is the stance? Where are we going with that? Well, it's difficult for companies to change their mindset. And the older the company gets, the more it becomes like your old granddad who has certain views that really don't fly very well with uh, you know, later generations. It's, it's always the way. Society changes, expectations change, and you can't expect everybody to immediately change. We've all grown up in different circumstances. So these companies grew up in different, and it's the same for companies. These companies grew up in certain economic times with certain social expectations. You know, you go back uh, 150 years ago, you had a lot of cases of the factory philanthropist. I mean, they were exploiting the workers and that they were working stupidly long hours with no health and safety legislation. But you have cases of those companies building housing for their employees, so recognizing that maybe if they're actually not freezing cold and they're fed well, then maybe they'll be better workers. We, we kind of, that sort of went out the window. And particularly the 80s, I think, was kind of ruthless in the way that uh, companies shifted and the way they treated employees. Companies are different again because they recognize that there's a shortage of talents. So they bribe software developers with free soft drinks and fruit. So yes, they have a problem with Web3 because they're still in the Web2 mindset, which is treat the users as a product to be processed and profited from. And I think marketing is the only area where we've seen a shift in that there's this idea that you want to build a brand and you can't really do that unless you're authentic because people are getting better and better at seeing through fake marketing and that having a, getting one customer who loves your brand and is loyal to you is worth more than 10 or a hundred casual purchases. And that means involving those kind of people. And we started seeing a bit of that with, for example, NFT projects. It's just, they didn't really know what to do after they'd minted a bunch of collectibles and then some pets for the collectibles and then had a few parties, but but the idea was there. So it's all it's all still got to coalesce. But I think there might be some interesting new business entities out there in the future that people from twenty years ago would not recognise as being businesses even. But by their own measure, they're going to be very very successful. One of my takeaways for this conversation is that web free somehow is an evolution of the internet uh, that align incentives uh, on one side and also kind of redistribute wealth or the way wealth and also the way wealth is captured. That's one of my main takeaways. But we also seen that somehow this wealth can be can be stolen, you know? And there is a lot of problems uh, that we still need to face uh, when it comes to web free and the way it's structured, and we touched upon it when we were talking about DAOs. And here, like, I want to refer to to the book that you wrote, Evil Economics, that made mm-hmm. me kind of thoroughly uncomfortable because it's written <laughs> from the point of view. It's written from the point of view of someone that wants to intentionally maximize his or her wealth. And then doing so by scamming people, basically, as a result, right? Get to get rich as quickly as possible. So 
what are the what are those things that we still really need to figure out uh, and improve and uh, that as a as a user that interact with web free we should really be mindful and pay attention phrase differently what are the red flags uh, that we should really be looking at uh, and what are those yeah well like i think the thing is it's a new right whenever anything new comes along scams appear to just just like with the discovery of the south seas and then there was the south sea bubble and all sorts of crazy enterprises that now we look back at and we laugh but at the time people did were suffering from fear of missing out on fomo and so they put their money into hairbrains schemes or downright scams and uh, so this is nothing new and it just takes a while for people to actually get familiar with what's going on the same when email took off it's It was a great opportunity for all sorts of email scams. It was a, a real big problem in the 90s, and it continues to be so, but it, it's getting less all the time. As for the structures that we can put in place to protect against this, well, we have a whole load of stuff historically that solves similar problems relating to spam, relating to fraud, relating to malicious websites. A lot of that stuff will apply. A lot of it's going to be about the brand issue again. If it's a website run by a known entity, then you're more likely to trust it than if it's some random person. But the space is so new that there hasn't really been much time for an established community to emerge and for you to then have networks where they refer to each other. There's still newcomers arriving all the time. So, uh, so there's that part of it too. But I think the main one is education in that Whenever any new technology has come along, it takes a while for people just to get comfortable and familiar with it and to know what is a good idea and what is a bad idea. So now I have a bunch of kids and I am teaching them about how to use their mobile phones and how not to use their mobile phones. You know, it's, nobody was around to teach me what was a good idea and what was a bad idea with a mobile phone. Fortunately, I didn't make any stupid mistakes with them, but, you know, I have had to tell my seven-year-old son, taking a mobile phone and taking a picture of yourself when you're in the shower is not a good idea. And it's not just because the phone might get wet. So these are the kind of things that just we grow up with. And we've had this throughout human history, right? Believe it or not, there was a time when people didn't have to worry about being run over by cars. So they didn't teach their children to look left and right before crossing the road. So now it's just taken for granted that, yes, learning how to be safe on the road is an important skill that every child must learn. So I think it's the same for Web3 with that, and it's just that it's early days. And thank you for mentioning my uh, book, by the way, Evil Tokenomics, which goes into some of the kinds of scams that you can find out there in Web3. And I've written it from the perspective of an evil genius living on a tropical island in an underground lair called Maximilian Saunaron. And there's a, a reason I did this, which is as a, if I was just to tell you, this is dangerous, this is bad, this is a scam, this is not good, you go, oh, okay, okay. I just reasoned it's more likely to stick in people's minds if they're reading it as an almost like a novel that's been written by a Bond villain telling them exactly how he goes about his nefarious schemes. So thanks for the reference to the book. That that was really successful, by the way. That tactic, you know, it really sticks. <laughs> so you really yeah. start it to pay attention then. <laughs> it horrifies as well, yeah. Yeah, it works fantastically, I have to say. 
And it really strikes me that, like, again, it's the economy of participation, right? So mm. you choose this token. This token is kind of equivalent of having a, a share in a company. Yeah. You can sell this share. It grants you maybe voting powers. But at the same time, it can be designed in a way that potentially it could be a scam, potentially, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. In a way that it's uh, more difficult uh, for a share in a company to be, maybe, I don't know, it's a lack of regulation. Maybe it's this kind of in-between realm and the adoption of a new technology and no one really knows what they're doing when something is yeah. new, right? It's a lot yeah. of uh, trial and error and experimentation, but it really struck me. And it's part of this kind of Wild West uh, uh, mm. early days yeah. space <laughs> yeah it's the same in every industry though right here we are approaching the the end of the conversation uh, uh, we will link uh, everything that we mentioned in this interview in the show notes including your your two books one we already mentioned in the interview which is evil economics uh, and uh, the second one which i'm reading right now and has uh, this amazing analogy to explain uh, blockchain with the bus system uh, it's called uh, uh, Move Over Brokers, Here Comes the Blockchain. So we'll link mm. everything in the show notes. It was really a pleasure having you on the show. I certainly hope uh, we will have uh, a round two uh, at some point soon in the future. Okay. Yeah, I uh, think we will. I think we will. Uh, maybe when there's been a few more advances and discoveries and maybe a few more scandals in the, uh, in the crypto and blockchain world. Well, with how fast the space moves, uh, I, I feel like it could be fairly soon. Yeah, I think so too. But it really was a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for having me on the uh, podcast. I very much enjoyed it. And uh, for everyone else, see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.